0: Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. Then he says to you, you are the light of the world. You don't just shine in a, in a metaphorical sense. <laughs> you are the light of the world. And if Moses, under an old covenant, shine at a revelation of the goodness of God, how much more you and I, under a new covenant, when I say like I said last night darkness is not a threat to you because the devil's on a budget he's defeated and the light of the world lives in you you can literally move through this earth and not even be aware that darkness is an issue, why? because the minute you step into a room it's not a dark place anymore Mm hmm be excellent in what is good be innocent of evil Romans 16:19. I didn't finish elaborating on this last night be excellent in what is good be innocent of evil in other words be an expert in the goodness of God you don't have to be an expert in the things of the devil. You don't have to be an expert in the works of darkness. You're not ignorant of those things. It means we know that they exist. But the reality is, you know, you're not. Your life's devotion to focus in on one thing is to fix your eyes on Jesus, the Author and the Finisher of your faith, the One who is victorious over the works of darkness, so that you represent and reflect Him. And when we're excellent in what is good and innocent of evil, in other words, you know, it basically is to. In a sense, to walk around without letting darkness become an influence in your heart, and uh, and here's the result of that: the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. All of us want to see the devil defeated. Here's how you do it: fix your eyes on Jesus, yeah. become enamored with the goodness of God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. be filled with so much hope that goodness overtakes you at every. Goodness and mercy is supposed to follow you all the days of your life. Let's call it angelic presence. An angelic presence named goodness and mercy. You have have staff, you have bodyguards, all right? Goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. (laughs) We just want to make this simple. Yeah, so Moses comes down from the mountain after seeing the glory of God, the manifest goodness of God, just the backside of it. He's literally glowing. Now in Ephesians chapter three, verse twenty and twenty-one says, "Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above beyond all you could ask or think, according to the power that works where, in you." you. Yeah. Hmm. People go, "Well, I don't share. God doesn't share His glory with another." True. That doesn't qualify for you because you're not another. You're in Christ. Okay? So, he says, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ask or think according to the power at work within you. To him be glory, the manifest goodness of God. In other words, we're going to return that goodness back to him by reflecting the very nature of his character in this world. To him be glory in the church. So you are meant to be a carrier of the glory of God. You're a light bearer, a carrier of the glory. Unthreatenable. Can't threaten a dead person. Because you died and your life is hidden with God and Christ. And you're resurrected means eternity has begun for you now. You're already there. Seated in heavenly places with Christ the complete unfolding of that realm as all the death is is the veil to the complete unfolding of that realm but death isn't your savior Jesus is and you're not just biding your time hoping to overcome make it through this life no listen you're planted here for a reason you're alive for a purpose to shine to carry the glory of god mhm the reality is because of the new covenant you and I are the ark or the carrier of the new covenant glory of God. Right. <laughs> You're the Ark of the New Covenant. And when I said that last night, I loved watching the faces in here. You are the Ark of the New Covenant. You're like, whoa, if you touch the Ark, you could die. So the devil be, be awfully careful that he don't touch you. He wants us all that. And and you'd be dead if he could if he could get close to you. I mean honestly, it's like, seriously. Uh, He doesn't want you live. (laughs) He wants you completely dead. And if he can't kill you, he'll try to incapacitate you by bombarding you with as much fear as possible. And that fear, as we talked about last night, is intimidation. That's all it is. Intimidation. I I, I go to a lot of conferences and meetings and things. I hear a lot of great speakers and, and people. And I tell you what, in this day and age, grace doesn't sell books. I know that. It's the hardest message to preach. Back in the days when I was a fire and brimstone judgment preacher, oh my goodness, I got so many invitations, pats on the back, you know, getting to a we and them, us and them kind of a thing, you know, I mean, we're, we're all we're all going to heaven, the rest of those folks, man, they are lost, as a goose in a snowstorm, good thing, because I got a list of people that need judgment, and so do you, and, you know, and... Uh, and now I've discovered something. The gospel literally does mean good news. And when I walk out of a meeting and I realize that I am, I am anxious, I am, I am militantly fearful, I realize I might have heard a motivating message, but I haven't heard the gospel. Mm-hmm. When you walk out of a meeting... And you're just dripping with righteousness, peace, and joy and a revelation of the overcoming kingdom of God and the reality that the king actually lives, dwells, resides within you and that his kingdom is not under threat. And you're at a place of absolute peace where if the devil himself walked up to you and tried to say boo, you'd be like, do you know Jesus? I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like if you get to that point where you're just sitting there just so dripping with Jesus that the light of the world is shining so brightly that darkness can't even engage with you then you've heard the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but preach the gospel even if it's not popular. (laughs) I just can't help it. Because I feel like when it's all said and done and people come to the end of their own ego and their own working, they're trying to like... 1 John 2 says this. John writes to, to, to people and he writes three different things. He says, I write to you children, young men, and fathers. I don't know if you've ever caught this before, but he actually mentions all three groups twice, and he sort of mixes up what he's writing in there. And so when you read it, it's like, oh, that's cute. But it's really significant because he's writing to people who are on a spiritual journey, and he says, I write to you children, and he writes two things about children. He says, I write to you children because your sins are forgiven you, and you know the Father. And this is every Christian in the childhood stage. They know that they're forgiven. They've experienced the taste of the grace of God. They know that there's, a, there's something that's happened where old things have passed away, all things have become new. And they know the Father. In other words, they've received the spirit of adoption where now they're in the family. Right? They know God as Father and they know that they are a child of God. That's amazing. So I write to you children because you know the Father, you're in the family, and you know your sins are forgiven. You're like, what else do I need to know? Well, eventually we get a little restless. And so he says, I write to you young men, and he says three things about young men. And by the way, when he says young men, this is all, this is basically, it's not a gender thing. It's a, all of us find this stage at some point. He says, because you're strong, the word abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. You're strong. In other words, you realize, hey, I can do some stuff. The word abides in you. you. You learn just enough scripture to be dangerous. And you got a relationship with Jesus, the word made flesh, He dwells in you. That's awesome. It says, and you have overcome the evil one. In other words, you found some dragons to slay. I and mean, we all like that. That's always fun. You know, to go on a crusade. Give me a, give me a, give me something to fight against. Which actually, that's the biggest thing that sells books. I'm going to give you something to fight against, and this book's going to tell you how to do it. Right? So I'm going to give, I'm going to give you a dragon out there to slay. I'm not denying the existence of evil. There's evil in the world, but Jesus has overcome the world. So another time. So, so here you, you, have, you have young men's stage. These folks are out there. Man, they're grabbing the sword, and they are slaying dragons, and they are sweating, and they're high-fiving each other. And, and then they come home to meet the fathers. And this is the last group that Paul or, uh, that's, uh, that John writes to. He says, I write to you fathers. And he only says one thing about fathers, just one. And this is where we're all heading toward. What he says about fathers might not make a lot of sense unless you let the Holy Spirit stir in you an illumination of this reality. He says, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. In our walk and our journey with Christ, as disciples, the childhood stage, is you get forgiven of your sins and you get adopted into the family. Yay! New identity, new name. In the young man stage, you just want to go fight everything. Give me something to fight. Give me dragons to slay. In the fatherhood stage, you're at rest. I would call it reconciled rest in the heart of God because you have a sudden realization that he's already overcome everything I'm fighting. See, because the young man stage is all about you. The word abides in you. You're strong. You've overcome the evil one. The young man stage might feel like it's accomplishing a ton for God, but it's really still all about you. And eventually... You come to a realization when you finally look at dad and you go, how come you're not freaking out? Like, do you not see what's going on in the world? Get up off the throne and get back here and fix this. In the young man's stage, you're pining for the return of Jesus to come back because you're disappointed with the Jesus that came 2,000 years ago. Hear what I just said? In other words, you're like, you didn't do enough on the cross. Get back here and fix this now. In other words, you come to a realization in your own mind because you look around at the circumstances going on in the world and you think that when Jesus said it's finished that he was lying. And so you're like, get back here. Oh, so you're not coming back to do anything about this and not, not in the right... Timing for me. No. So I'm going to go fix it. So grab your sword and go find dragons to slay. And the young man look at the fathers at rest, at reconciled rest in the heart of God. And you go, man, you guys are old and you're lazy and, and we're going to go out here and do this stuff. And the fathers look at the young men and go, that's cute. They're so cute. Look at them. It's all right. You got a lot of energy. Get that energy out of it. Go for it. Swing that sword a little higher. I mean, you know, it's like fathers are just hanging out. Why? Because they've been there. They've done that. They've swung the sword. And now they've rested in this posture of being seated in heavenly places and reconciled union with the Father. It's a revelation of, of what Jesus said in John 14, 20. My, my favorite verse, I think the most mind melting revelation in the whole Bible. I can't find one that transcends this yet. And it's a verse I can't even begin to wrap my mind around. Where Jesus goes, in that day, you will know, I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. What day is he talking about? A few verses north of there, he reveals that that day is the day that he's defeated death and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. You begin to realize, wait a minute, he's been to the cross and he's resurrected from the dead. And the Holy Spirit has come, which means the day that He's talking about in John fourteen twenty that is in John's future is in your past. So the present reality of what you and I have access to is that you and I can live in reconciled rest and union with the heart of God. From that posture, you find a revelation of him who is from the beginning. He's the beginning and he's the end, the first and last, the alpha and the omega, and all of the challenges that we face in this life between then do not threaten the reality of his omega-ness. <laughs> he's still victorious overall. It's true. Breathing's a fascinating thing when you stop and think about it. Uh, uh, you, you know, take a deep breath. Go, <gasps> now breathe out. <sighs> Which one of those was a breath? There's a lot of people who have received the message of the gospel, but they've never let it out. People who just, and hold their breath, I mean, that's cessationist. (laughs) That's that's cessationist doctrine. We don't believe in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. Fine, hold your breath. You know how long your lifespan's going to be? Not very long. A healthy Christian life is understanding that there's... There's a process to this thing. And it's almost like with every breath, the thing we do thousands of times a day without even thinking about it, God has given us a physical illustration of what a healthy spiritual life looks like. Giving and receiving. Giving and receiving. And think about what breath is. Somehow, I, I figure this one out for me. What you take in changes and transforms inside of you. And what you release is transformed by the life that's around you so that you can take it. How does your body know how to separate the, the substances that are just floating around in the air to what you need and then transform it and send it out as something else? Really an astonishing reality. You're just a walking, living, miracle illustration of the gospel is what you are. You're a walking, living, miracle illustration of not just the gospel, but it looks to, to live in the spirit. This is a life in the spirit thing of... of receiving and giving and so when i spend time in the oil the oil by the way is the oil, i would call it the oil of intimacy intimacy with the holy spirit it's that place where you begin to realize there's no distance or separation because what the oil is doing it's not just like the water it's rinsing out the inside the oil gets into the skin it soaks into you. The oil is a revelation of your union, a revelation of your intimacy with God where it's impossible to find out where He begins and you end. The oil of intimacy is, is that place where John 14, 20 truly starts to become alive. You may not be able to understand it here, but your heart says yes to what your mind can't even begin to wrap itself around. In that place, you'll know, I am in the Father, and you were in me, and I am in you. And in that place of soaking in the oil, there's something amazing that happens. Guys, remember the story of uh, Jesus reclining at the table uh, with a bunch of religious people sitting around him, and then the woman comes in. She's got the alabaster jar, and it's worth a year's salary, and she breaks it over his feet, breaks the thing open, pours the whole thing out over his feet, and then she starts mopping it with her hair, wiping it down with her hair. Such a beautiful offering, right? Right? everybody else in the room is critical. Jesus just lets it happen. He knows this is so uncomfortable. It's so awkward for these guys who are watching this go down and they're saying to each other, if he knew who she was, he wouldn't even let her touch him. And Jesus finally pipes up and says, yeah, "She's preparing for me for my burial." which is kind of funny when, you know, Jesus knows none of these people know what I'm talking about. It's like, look at she's preparing me for my burial. Huh, that's funny, Jesus. What are you? Ta- what? what is he talking about? He's so cryptic that way. It's bizarre the way he talks about his death like that. And he goes, this act of worship, by the way, this will be talked about for generations to come. You know why she's doing this? She loves much because she's been forgiven much. Ironically, when the supper was over that night and they all left, she's the only one who walked out smelling like him. And that's what time in the oil does. Time in the oil of intimacy will make you smell like Jesus. He's called in the scripture the desire of the nations. And when you spend time in the presence of God, don't be surprised. When other people begin to recognize it, and they know it, you spend time soaking in the oil. Don't bypass the washing of the water of the word, but follow up the time in the word with time soaking in the oil. For me, it looks like putting some headphones in, throwing some worship music on that points my attention toward Jesus and magnifying him, sitting down with a journal, getting my pen out and sitting down and just going, God, if you have anything you want to speak to me, suddenly thoughts start coming. And suddenly revelation, illumination starts popping. Next thing I know, I'm writing stuff down. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm teaching myself. Oh wait, no, this isn't about me. This is you and me together. This is my mind. This is my physical mind now tapping into the reality that we have the mind of Christ, which means we have access to the thoughts of God. Now what am I doing? I realize that the one whose thoughts are higher than my thoughts has lifted me to a whole new place. David said this in... Uh, at one point he goes and now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me you guys remember that verse where he, he, it's like he's sitting there surrounded by enemies it looks like a lost cause it's David against everybody else and this is what God the glory and the lifter of our head does he doesn't put a bunch of weapons in David's hand he doesn't even give him an army of angels to fight with God reaches down to David's head and he shifts his perspective He doesn't change anything about the circumstances. He just changes David's perspective. And David goes, Now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me, and I will offer in your tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing. Yeah, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Whether it's that moment with David or the story of Jericho, there's a revelation that time in the oil of intimacy produces in you a heart of worship and you don't have to wait till you're in a corporate gathering to exercise that that heart of worship changes everything when it changes your perspective David now realizes I'm I'm in the tabernacle of God my response right now isn't to go God I'll praise you when all my enemies are gone no I'm going to praise you in the middle of my circumstance seems foolish just as foolish. As sending an army to go fight Jericho in this formation. Put the worship team in front. Yeah, but they don't have swords. Not the point. Put the worship team in front. March around the city. Don't even touch the walls. Just march around it. You're just surrounding it. What are you doing? You're beginning to recognize that something inside of you is bigger than the problem outside of you. And as you walk around, what are you doing? You're just just slowly walking. Worship team's in front. And finally, the end of the seventh day shout it's all about the voice it's about releasing a sound and in the release of the sound that has come from time spent in the oil of intimacy there is a breakthrough anointing that is released where the thickest walls start coming down jesus said you guys remember when he told us about how to move mountains so i tell you say to this mountain say to this mountain we're looking for the magic words what are the words no, it's a spirit. Your spirit carries a sound. When you spent time with the oil of intimacy of the presence of God, the sound that you release just by stepping into the room can be enough to move mountains. Amen. The same that light, light displacing darkness. Time in that place of the oil of intimacy with God is where God reveals the secrets of his heart to you. And when you get in that place where you're pliable and you say... Holy Spirit, fill me up again. Here's the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit. Paul said, when he said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. When he said, be filled with the Spirit, he was encouraging believers who were already filled with the Spirit. You know that? These people already had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was already moving in these. Matter of fact, the church in Ephesus was overflowing with miracles. These guys had more revival than just about any church in the New Testament. He says, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, don't neglect this reality. Keep the filling of the Holy Spirit as a priority in your life. Say, well, I got filled years ago. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a one, one and done thing, right? No. No, it's not. Paul said like this, Philippians 4, he says, Whatever things are lovely, true, pure, good report, worthy of praise, all these things. lists a whole bunch of things. He says, think on these things. Why does he tell us to think on these things? Because even in the New Covenant, you are given a choice to think on whatever you want to think about. And when you fill your mind up with things that are completely contrary to the Spirit, and you do that long enough, don't be surprised if pretty soon the things of the Spirit, you have no appetite for them at all. Show me a person who has no appetite for God and I'll show you a person who hasn't spent time in the oil of intimacy in a while. In the world, in our physical body, we eat food because we are hungry. We eat food so we will be full, so our appetite will be satiated. and Now we don't, we don't have to eat any, anymore for a while. That's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, you eat to get hungrier. The more you taste of his goodness, the more you want. And it's not that you carry a hunger and a desire out of a place of lack. You carry a hunger and a desire that increases because you now see what you already have access to and you want to see more. And it's almost like when you, when you taste of the things of God, you're like, do it again more please that's that's like the best thing ever and you wonder you wonder how in the world in eternity the angels can be flying around the throne going holy 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 is that like the most boring job ever to fly in a circle and say holy all the time apparently not apparently there is an existence On that plane, in that realm of a revelation of the glory of God, that is the greatest treasure, pleasure, and satisfaction than you can ever possibly know. These guys aren't flying around going, holy, holy, holy. I've been doing this for a billion years. It's my billionth anniversary of saying holy around the throne can we change direction because I'm just tired of flying to the left? Can can we fly to the right for a while? Well, I don't think it's that way at all. I think with every slight movement, there's a revelation of the glory of God, the, the manifold unfolding wisdom of God where he's consistently seen more than they've ever seen before. Just when you think you've seen it all, they just move a little bit and they're like, holy I think that's the way it is. I think it's, holy, holy, did you just, wow. It's moment by moment, they're absolutely astonished. Why? Because beholding him never gets boring. It increases in glory and excitement. And if you ever got so hungry that you were tired of it, and you're like, I've had enough, well, you'd see the angels fly off, go do something else for a while. But that's not the way it is. They never, never get tired of beholding the holiness of God. And the amazing thing is what I was talking about just scratching the surface of last night it is the holiness of god that actually rests in and resides within you his very identity becomes your inheritance which is why the fruit of the spirit the same attributes that god has actually start to manifest and show up in your life you haven't even met yourself yet not fully not fully I love one of my favorite quotes by Bill Johnson. If you you knew who God created you to be, you would never want to be anybody else. And the amazing part about this life of, of union with Christ is that who he's created you to be is incredibly unique. I freak your brain out just a little bit here. Who he's made you to be is absolutely so unique. And it's the same Holy Spirit. Let's say Chris, right? So it's the same Holy Spirit in Chris as is in me. Right? And yet, God may show up in Chris differently than he shows up in me. So it's almost like he gives Chris an emphasis of his nature, his character, his attributes that shows up in Chris. And I'm standing there and going, wow, that is amazing. As I get to know Chris more, I get to know my father more. As we actually get closer, as you get closer with one another... Then you start to get to know a little bit more about who he is. That's the way it is. It's like, what is He? he's, he's drawing us all into one. Jesus prayed in John 17, I pray that they would be one, just like us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's looking for the body of Christ to come to that revelation of unity. Hey, thanks so much for listening today. You can write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota. 56258. Send prayer requests along. We pray for every single one and we want to stand with you. Also, you can support the broadcast by going to BillVanderbush.com and clicking on the Give button or Vanderbush Ministries and clicking on the Give button. Both of them go to the same place. Take care until next time. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.